0: Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canada's Great War. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases every Monday, Wednesday, Saturday. From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. All are available on all podcast platforms. Also, I do all those podcasts myself. The writing, the research, everything. So every dollar you give helps keep all of it going. As well as I really appreciate five-star reviews or any reviews, really. Constructive criticism is something I use to make the podcast even better. And if you do a review, I will thank you on the air. If you like, you can email me at craig at ehx.com. You can find me on Twitter, my handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. After looking at the life of Canadians in the trenches, it's time to get back to the battles. So far, Canada has seen some minor battles, at least in terms of what was to come, and by May of 1915, the Canadian Expeditionary Force was about to see its next major battle, which would see double the casualties of anything seen before for the Canadian troops. The Battle of Festubert was launched on May 15, 1915, as a continuation of the Battle of Aubers Ridge, in order to assist the French 10th Army against Vimy Ridge. The goal was to attract German divisions to the British front, rather than allowing the Germans to reinforce defenders against the French. The battle would take place just south of Neuve chapelle where Canadians had seen action earlier in the year, and remember I did an episode on that just a few weeks ago. To the south was the village of Festubert. An assault was planned along a five kilometer long front that would be made up initially of Indian troops. The hope was that a hole would be punched in the German lines. There would be two brigades of the 1st Canadian Division taking part with the British troops in the attack, The 3rd Canadian Infantry Brigade was ordered to capture an orchard outside the village along with a building. The brigade was commanded by Brigadier General Richard Turner. The 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade was commanded by Brigadier General Arthur Currie, who will be getting his own episode down the road. He was tasked with taking enemy trenches in the south. Neither brigade was really given the chance to prepare for the attack, nor did they receive accurate maps or enough firepower to actually accomplish the mission. On top of that, the attack was postponed twice, further complicating matters. Things began with a 60-hour bombardment by 433 artillery guns launching 100,000 shells. The 3rd Brigade was assigned to the British 7th Division, but failed to reduce the gap in the line between the 2nd and 7th Divisions. Unfortunately, the bombardment did little damage to the defenses of the German 6th Army, and little in the way of an advance was made. On May 16th, the attack was renewed, but, by the 19th, the British army had to withdraw its divisions due to heavy losses. Sir John French would write of those first days of the battle, quote, To the northeast of Festubert, seven machine guns were captured, and it is possible that more may be buried in the destroyed trenches. Today, three German batteries were silenced by our guns, one battery being destroyed by direct hits and its ammunition blown up, end quote. On May 20th, the 3rd Brigade conducted an attack in broad daylight with the bombardment at 4 p.m., followed by an attack at 7.45 p.m. The 16th Battalion, called the Canadian Scottish, and the 15th Battalion, the Highlanders of Canada, were designated to be the Assault Battalion. Lieutenant Colonel Lecky protested this order, but Turner stated that the British had stated that night operations restricted the ability of commanders to control troop movements. The plan was made for the No. 3 Company to attack the Orchard, while the number 1 Company supported it. The number 3 Company was able to reach the Orchard and take it despite the defenders being dug in. This put them within 100 yards of the main German trenches. Attempts to attack the trench failed under heavy fire and belts of barbed wire. With the taking of the Orchard, though, the Canadian-Scottish had made the deepest penetration of any unit of the British First Army during the battle, and the orchard would actually remain in the hands of the allies until the spring of 1918. as for the highlanders they suffered heavy losses going over open ground right into machine gun fire of the germans the highlanders gained the north breastwork but could not advance more than 100 yards past it for the second brigade the attack was even worse the trench maps were full of errors and curry asked that the attack be halted before it became a total failure Curry, in what was his first major difference of opinion with commanders, said later that he was left angry and bitter about being forced to take on an action that he knew was wrong. For the 2nd Brigade attack, the 8th and 10th Battalions moved into the line on May 19th, and the 2nd Brigade assumed its positions on the lines. The attack was planned for May 21st, but then, with only 5 hours notice, it was announced that the attack would take place on May 20th. With little time to prepare, the 10th Battalion was selected for the assault, with two companies attacking the German communication trench, and Major Percy Guthrie acting as acting commander. He would describe the German line as, quote, constructed of concrete and sandbags and in which numerous machine guns were mounted so as to sweep the ground in every direction, end quote. In the words of the Army official historian afterwards, the attack was doomed to failure before it started. The attack would lead to severe Canadian casualties and barely any ground was taken. The Vancouver province would write in its account of the battle, quote, The infernal shriek and roar of high explosive shells and ear-splitting whizbangs, bangs accompanied by the almost incessant rocking of the earth, following the bursting of coal boxes, continued for two hours, during which period casualties came rapidly, end quote. Along with troops in direct combat, there was the support troops who played a vital role. The province relates, quote, The men of the medical section suffered heavily as one after another were placed into combat as they exposed themselves in moving up and down the trenches to render first aid to their stricken comrades. Telephone wires connecting the different units with headquarters were cut by shells time and again, immediately to be repaired by the intrepid signalers of the staff, End quote. On May 21st, a new renewed attack was called for, and Major Guthrie would make three trips across the terrain to headquarters to finalize the attack on the front. The communication trench would be utilized as a jumping-off point, and the same two companies from the night before would be used, splitting them in two, with the left-hand company going after the objective and the right-hand company clearing trenches. Guthrie knew that for the attack to succeed, artillery fire was incredibly important. Unfortunately, the bombardment that began at 5 p.m. and went on for four hours was ineffective since an ammunition shortage resulted in the use of shrapnel shells that were ineffective against the trenches. The attack was a failure and Curry would withdraw the men from all but 100 yards of the newly occupied line. The 10th Battalion would suffer the losses of 18 officers and 250 troops. For the next three days, from May 22nd to May 24th, the Canadians would attack at various times, taking out patrols and completing night assaults. The attacks would succeed in taking more land, but would see the death of 13 officers and over 250 casualties overall. The Montreal Gazette would report on May 24th, quote, definite action was again on Friday near Festubert, when the Canadians fighting again with splendid dash took a line of German trenches in the orchard of a farmhouse, which was a critical and important spot, end quote. A member of the Coldstream Guards would relate watching the Canadians' fight, stating, quote, The Canadians went into the attack just as if they were drilling at Hyde Park. I never saw anything like it. Each man keeping about two paces interval, going up at a walking pace with dozens of maxims turned on them, besides field artillery and the whole of the German rifle fire about a mile in front of them. In fact, no better example could be shown by any regiment under the British flag and it gives us better courage to know that we have such men to rely on. End quote. The last Canadian involvement in the battle would be the Canadian Cavalry Brigade, commanded by Brigadier General J.E.B. Seeley, who had volunteered for service due to the heavy casualties hitting the 1st Canadian Division. On May 25th, the brigade launched an attack despite no training in trench warfare, fighting alongside the British 47th Division. And they were able to gain some ground on the front. The British would eventually capture the village of Festubert, advancing the front by only three kilometres. The Canadian troops would capture several Germans in the final part of the attack. On May 26th, the Vancouver province would report one story from a witness to the battle and the captures. It stated, quote, A Canadian sergeant who found some Germans who spoke English jokingly called out to a British detail, bring up a machine gun section and finish the slot off for fun. The Germans, babbling excitedly among themselves, then a spokesman called out, "'Don't shoot us, Canadians. We are tired of fighting. We want to be taken prisoners to England.'" End quote. The Ottawa Journal would report, quote, "'The Germans made four strong attacks on the British trenches, especially against the Canadians. The first was in great force and in massed formation, but our shrapnel caught the enemy in the open and inflicted heavy losses.'" The three attacks which followed were not on the same scale but resulted in heavy losses to the Germans and were easily repulsed. End quote. The British would lose 16,648 men while the Canadian Division lost over 2,400 soldiers in one week of fighting. In all, the Canadians took 600 yards of ground across a mile of front, taking a few defenses but not reaching the objective set or the German front line. The battle would be called the most unsatisfactory engagement involving Canadians of the war. One reason for this was that half the troops there had been fresh from reinforcement camps and barely arrived from Canada. The 1st Canadian Division would lose 93 officers, one in five of those being with the 10th Battalion. The 10th Battalion lost over 250 men, while the 16th Battalion would lose 277 men, including six officers. Seven soldiers were recognized for bravery in battle. Captain Stanley Anderson of the 5th Battalion received the Distinguished Service Order for his actions on May 20th, when he refused to go into an ambulance after being wounded until his tour of duty was completed. On May 24th, he was wounded in the head but remained another day and night leading his men in an attack. Captain Frank Morrison of the 16th Battalion commanded a company attack on May 20th in an orchard where he captured a German position under heavy fire, earning him the Distinguished Service Order. Captain John Nash of the 5th Battalion repaired telephone lines under heavy fire from May 22nd to 24th, ensuring vital communication links stayed connected. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Order for his bravery. Captain Stanley Smith of the Field Ambulance went out to remove the wounded with eight other men in the orchard under heavy fire. They were able to bring back all the wounded, but suffered four wounded themselves, two of which would die. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Order. Lieutenant Donald MacDonald of the Lord Strathcona's horse was wounded three times, but still led his men in an attack on the Germans and succeeded in his attack. He was awarded the Military Cross, and upon home with his return in June, he would write There is one thing that I must say, and it is the thing uppermost in my mind every time I think of the fight that is the men. The men are absolutely fine, no better fighters in the world can be had. There is simply no quit to them." Lieutenant Disraeli Shrink organized and directed a grenade company in the attack carried out by the 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade. He maintained his position for 20 hours during which he was constantly under German fire. He was awarded the Military Cross. Prime Minister Sir Robert Borden was in London, England, and he would speak with a man who had been wounded with four bullets in the right arm, four in the left shoulder, and three in the leg. He would state, When I met with him, I asked him whether the surgeon had succeeded in extracting all the bullets in one operation. He replied, Well, he missed a few the first time. Then he went on to tell me how the second operation became successful. The spirit of the wounded was splendid. So let's look at some of the other men who fought in the battle and were wounded. Private W.J. Dean from Brant County had been part of the attack and was seriously wounded when shrapnel hit him, causing severe injuries. The injuries on the outside were bad, but the internal injuries were even worse. He was in hospital for quite a while before transferring to Canada and spending time in a hospital in London, Ontario. He had recovered enough to enter civilian life, and he began selling war books, but he suddenly took extremely ill and died in hospital. Milton Gregg was born in Mountdale, New Brunswick, in 1892, and he would volunteer to serve in the First World War as a private with the Highlanders. He would cross into France in February 1915 and took part in several small engagements until he was severely wounded in the Battle of Festubert, and sent back to England where he trained to be an officer. He would be awarded the Victoria Cross in 1918 and eventually became the MP for York Sunbury, serving as the Minister of Labour from 1950 to 1957, and the Minister of Veterans Affairs from 1948 to 1950. Arthur Dodd of Troshu would enlist in 1914, and served with the cavalry until he was wounded with shrapnel in the eye and forced to return home. Private James Lovett would write home regarding the preparations for battle in a letter on May 27, 1915. He would say, quote, Our line had advanced, and we had nothing to bother us except the occasional shell. It was in this spot we were caught when advancing to age a flank attack. The Germans saw us advancing into the trenches and shelled us. Parapets, sandbags, and the result of a big shell. We managed to get them out, I hear a new draft of Camerons is coming. I guess we will need almost the whole of them to make up our company. The boys are not lacking in spirit and sang nearly all the way back to the trenches that night. End quote. Private AP Glasgow would also write home after the battle, stating, I've had some exciting times since I last wrote you, a bayonet charge being the most stirring. We captured a trench from the Germans, but they unfortunately could not pluck up enough nerve to wait for us in the gleam of our boys' nets in the moonlight, and our Indian yell caused them to beat into the most undignified manner, leaving only a few wounded behind them. They made a couple of various vicious counterattacks the next day, but we managed to keep them out with heavy loss to ourselves. Fortunately, I came through the whole thing without a scratch, though the reaction afterwards left me with nerves somewhat shaken. End T.L. Golden of the Watasquin branch of the Lord Strathcona's horse would detail some of the more intense moments of the battle in a letter home. This is a rather long quote, but it gives an excellent look at the battle. He states, quote, At noon, we found we had to repair about 200 yards of communication trench that had been blown away in the morning. Before starting this, we decided to have dinner, so we dug ourselves in and wrestled with some bully beef and hard tack. This finished, we picked up our shovels and started out. We were just about a 100 yards from our dugout and in a very exposed place where they started the fireworks. There was a sandbank there and we rushed for it. I dug a hole with my nose and urged it tight. A shell hit the bank immediately above my head and two of us were absolutely covered with sand and clay. There was a dirty, green, slimy pool immediately behind where we lay, and when a shell burst right in it, and presto, we were all covered in green slime and pieces of frogs. End quote. The letter continues. When it all stopped, I shook myself and took a look around. My haversack was riddled, and there was a great piece of a shell embedded in my tin of bully beef. My emergency ration of biscuits was all broken up into crumbs. A cartridge pouch was completely shot off my belt, not a round, and it exploded. Two of our boys were wounded, and I had a shrapnel in the fleshy part of my thigh. End quote. He goes on, quote, I just about this time saw some of the finest example of pluck that a person could see. One sergeant had a great piece torn out of his right. He calmly put his left hand into his pocket, pulled out a knife, opened it with his teeth, and slit his coat sleeve. Then he took a field dressing out of his pocket and bandaged himself. When it was done, he called the corporal of the troop and gave him charge, end quote. He also describes shellfire in the letter, stating, quote, You hear it coming as a dull moan, then it gradually develops into a weird whistle. Then a shriek, and the earth rocks under you. You are covered with mud and earth, and you are glad you are alive. Simultaneously, with the bursting of a shell, come with the cries and moans of the wounded. When you are exposed to this for quite a while, it gets rather nerve-wracking, My left ear is singing yet. The battle is one that is rarely celebrated within Canada and is mostly forgotten in the wake of other battles such as Passchendaele and Vimy Ridge. Nonetheless, many Canadians died for only a few hundred meters of ground. I would like to talk about a soldier who fought in the war, and their life afterwards, and as you know, that's how I like to end my episodes. Captain William Henry Harton was born in Fuchow, China in 1887. At the time, his father was an English tea planter, and the family would live in the country for the first years of his life. The family would move around several times, including to the United States. When the First World War broke out, Harton would leave the United States and travel to Canada to enlist with the 5th Canadian Mounted Rifles. At the time, he had been with the 7th New York Regiment before leaving the country. He would go overseas with the Canadian Expeditionary Force and would fight at Ypres, where he was shot in the leg. Sadly, he would lose his leg, but he would survive. Returning to the United States, he worked briefly for the United Fruit Company in Guatemala, but came back to Canada to work for the Canadian Civil Service, specifically in the Income Tax Division in 1927. He was granted the hereditary title of Mercer of the City of London which is given to outstanding merchants. The title gave him the ceremonial right of the possessor of the freedom of the city. In 1938 he would enter hospital due to ill health and on January 9, 1940 he would pass away. He was survived by his wife Lillian and his two daughters Irene and Patricia. you enjoyed that episode of my look at the battle of festu bear if you did please leave a rating and review next week i'm going to be looking at the number two construction battalion a group made up entirely of black soldiers if you like you can reach me through email at craig at you can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes just go to canada ehx.com and don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lori Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara-Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke Guess, JP Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash canadianhistoryx. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia, the Canadian War Museum, Canada.ca, CanadianSoldiers.com, Wikipedia, the History of Brant County, Fredericton's 100 Years, Then and Now, Remember When, the History of Chochu and District, the Vancouver Sun, the Montreal Gazette, the Regional Leader Post, the Ottawa Journal, the Victoria Daily Times, and the Calgary Herald. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.